That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Sober Guy Radio. Thanks to humans for bringing us in, and thanks to you for supporting the show. Today's guest is Joseph Nas, and Joseph was born in 1971. He graduated from Pepperdine Law, and he passed the bar exam in 1997. Uh, Joseph was raised by his mom, who was a heroin addict turned shut-in depressive amidst, amongst crime and poverty. At age 32, Joseph's American dream life became a nightmare when his addictions to sex and alcohol collided and exploded. And this comes from the back of his book, Straight Pepper Diet, kind of a little um, little intro or a little piece of what Joseph's story uh, entails. It says, on Tuesday, I was a respected civil trial lawyer making six figures. On Wednesday, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed being charged with attempted murder. And then it got worse. So how does it get worse? Well, uh, we talk in detail about that in this episode. We also got into some lighter topics uh, that includes punk rock. Joseph and I both have a love for punk rock, so we talked a little bit about that. And uh, we also talked about Joseph's background in martial arts, which has to do, uh, it's actually a, a, a significant part of his story. Um, and we talked about movies like Kickboxer and Bloodsport. And uh, I think we even mentioned Dennis Alexio, who comes from uh, my hometown of Vacaville. We're going to get to Joseph in just a minute. First, a word from our sponsor. At Foundations Recovery Network, our mission is to create lifetime relationships for long-term recovery. In our history of doing good is the promise of your future getting better. So if you or someone you love needs help, please know we are here to help. And the sign on our door says, we care. We create an individualized treatment plan for the whole person, for the whole you, because to us, you matter. The first step to recovery is heroic. We know that. And with our heroes in recovery movement, we honor those who have taken that step toward recovery and stand up for you and stand beside you and stand together to break the stigma placed on addiction. Call our confidential and private line at 877-714-1318. We are here to help you. And help has a phone number, 877 877- 7141318 make the call we're listening we're foundations recovery network thanks to foundations for supporting the show go to that soberguy.com check out all the free stuff there you can uh, you can sign up for the emails of the show any updates anything like that you can also sign up and download uh, the six quick tips to quit drinking in 24 hours it's not a magic guide that's going to save your ass by any means uh, but what it did for me is, um, you know, these, these kind of steps, these quick tips helped get me started and get me on the right track. And, uh, hopefully it can do the same for you. Check those out there. That's soberguy.com. You can also jump into the private Facebook group, sober guy, sober girl, and, uh, go check out Patreon. Uh, Patreon is really a direct way for you to support us at, uh, sober guy radio, uh, go to patreon.com slash sober guy radio. And when you do that, and when you make a pledge, you only got to pledge five bucks a month. 
Uh, it helps support the operation. You'll also get access to Jess and I's new show, Real. And uh, the you'll get content on Real like codependency. Um, one in, in one episode, we talk about codependency. Um, and I'll, I'll just read this. In episode two of The Real Show, Shane and the Jess discuss abusing jelly donuts and codependency. Cash also makes a guest appearance at the very end to inform everyone that he pooped his pants. So enjoy. These are the types of things, man. These are just real life shit that we go through in, in relationships and dealing with struggles in recovery and dealing with a spouse or a loved one. Um, we kind of talk about that. We air out some of that shit. And uh, I don't want to talk about how I've been abusing jelly donuts, but hey, it's life. It's real. And that's why it's called The Real Show. So check that out on patreon.com slash sober guy radio. Now let's get to Joseph Nas. Welcome to Sober Guy Radio. Thanks for tuning in today. I have Joseph Nas joining the show. Joseph, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, how's it going? Let's just let's let's dive right in here, man. I know, um, I know you had a rough childhood. Take us back to kind of how you got through that, Joseph. Well, um, just you know, I was uh, I'm from Southern California. Well, let's see, where do I start here? I'm 45 years old now. Uh, I was born in Southern California in, in Riverside, kind of a, a rough area. And uh, my mom, my uh, my mom had me when she was uh, 17. I think she was pregnant when she was 16. Had me when she was 17. Uh, my dad left when I was, I think, six weeks old. And so we were on welfare. And my mom got into heroin, and uh, was a, was a heroin addict. And so I was in, a, you know, I was just me and my mom. And uh, it was it was rough, you know. And she got busted with me in the car uh, scoring dope, and um, almost had me uh, taken away and put into foster care. But that didn't happen, and so I stayed around. And uh, and you know, I, I have memories of going to the methadone clinic with her when I was a kid. And yeah. you know, after the, the strange thing about that was that after my mom uh, kicked heroin successfully. Um, she really just became a depressive kind of shut in. And that, that was actually kind of worse, you know, cause she didn't do anything. So my childhood was rough and, uh, very lonely. And, uh, you know, there's, I always say that there was two different ways you could go. And, and one was to be a tough guy and the other was to be a, to just kind of like disappear. And I, I disappeared. And, um, so what, uh, you know, that, what, how, how did you, so if, if, if mom is, um, mom is, is obviously an addict, she's probably encased in her own world in her own bubble in a sense. How do you survive as a kid? How do you eat? I mean, just the, just the basics, you know? Well, I, I had three techniques for eating and, um, when things got really rough, especially during the summers when I wasn't at school and couldn't get food that way. Yeah. Uh, one, I would go to, there was a boys club up the street and during the summers and even during the regular time, they would, uh, non-summers, they would give, um, snacks away and sometimes lunches. And the second way I did it was by stealing from, um, a, a, a grocery store, uh, that was up the street, like a little, um, market, small market. And the third way was the way that probably was the most important was I would, I would always have like friends that were from a neighborhood that was about a couple miles away that was a nicer neighborhood and I would befriend these kids and I would spend the night. So sometimes I'd spend the night at one kid's house two nights and then go to another kid's and I'd be gone for a week, you know, at a time. 
And then on the first, I think it was the first of the month, you know, I, I don't know if I'm, anyways, we would get our welfare checks and then for a couple days things would be cool and then I would go back. So that was kind of that way I, I did it when I was probably from, I don't know, second grade through eighth or ninth until I actually got a job when I was in high school. Damn, dude, second grade, man. Like my my, my daughter's in first grade, and I so that kind of puts that in perspective. Um, you know, when you think about that, how do you, uh, you know, how how has that affected you as an adult? Like, uh, I know in, in part of recovery is obviously going back and and dealing with those issues from when we were a kid. But how have you kind of been able to dealt or deal with that and overcome it? Well, I used to have this story for myself, and that was. That which doesn't kill you makes you stronger, you know, that whole thing. Yeah, sure. And then I kind of <laughs> matured into this of, of this kind of understanding that, yeah, that's not really true. <laughs> you know? I mean, it kind of, yeah. <laughs> it's true in some regards, but it's not true in others. It's certainly true in a physical sense of like, I know how to survive, yeah. but emotionally, it's not necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is, it's a, isn't that the nature of alcoholism or, or spirituality is that everything is true at, at some points and not true at others and true in some ways and not true in others, you know, it's kind of like that. So I also had this other story that I told myself, which is that my mom was the victim of my father and my father was to blame for everything. Wow. And I also had to learn that that wasn't exactly correct either, you know, that she was one of us that didn't get the gift that we got. And so... You know, I was able to forgive her, and I also understood that you know she didn't. She wasn't just a victim. She made her own choices, and yeah. you know, I always say, I would, once I know that I'm an addict, my responsibility is to get is to get help. Yeah. That's the thing I can do wrong. Um, the if I truly believe that addiction is a disease, which I do, then how can I say that someone who has a disease is is culpable for anything other than getting help, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So sure. that's the way I looked sure. at it. Yeah. That's always a tough one, man. And I, I know, I know I even struggle with that still, man, is like the, you know, your, your loved one that you want to help, but at the same time, um, putting into putting like the, the feelings of, of the love and like, or the tough love or the, um, you know, the, uh, uh make excuses, love, whatever it is like, ultimately, uh, we're all the same in that aspect of, like, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm sick in a sense, you know what I mean? Like I, I, if without this, without the right, uh, therapy or a program or some help out there, um, I'm really fighting an uphill battle against myself. Um, now I know that, I know that as a kid too, um, one of the things I thought was interesting about you, and it actually plays a little bit into the, the, the later story, which of course we're going to get into, um, but was about your ability to defend yourself. Talk about how that was um, something that kind of helped you um, evolve and, uh, and, and grow as, as a, a boy into a man. Well, um, you know, like I said, I was pretty wimpy when I was really young and I was just always, you know, bowing away and I was a big kid I'm tall I'm like six four and, and so even during kid I was usually the tallest kid in class I didn't really get picked on too much but when I did I'd always just you know cowered away yeah and then I kind of got sick of that <laughs> just kind of snapped and uh when I was in high school and I just kind of went crazy one time after I got bullied by uh, someone which that was just a the event that happened it was a long series of this type of thing and it was just like Getting beat up my life, you know? Yeah, sure. 
And I just kind of decided at that point, this is way before I started using any drugs or alcohol, that uh, I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I, and I, like, I left school that day and didn't go to work, and I went and signed up at a, a gym slash kung fu studio. <laughs> and, and it was just really a change in attitude more than anything else. It, uh, and, I, and I just really went at it. I was just like, my attitude was, um, I'd rather die than be a coward again. And, uh, and I went after it like crazy. I started lifting all the time. I got, you know, I kind of muscled up a little bit and I, and I got into martial arts and I first started Kung Fu, which after a while I just kind of realized was more of a dance than a fighting art. So I started kickboxing and I hooked up with this guy, David Morrow, who was a crazy kickboxer kind of this was before MMA was a thing we used to call it MMA shoot fighting yeah. and it was kind of a, we did kickboxing which was knees and elbows and stuff and he was this guy was just crazy he's he's passed away since then he, he was tell me uh tell me you were watching blood sport around that time oh yeah <laughs> that blood and- sport uh, David actually was uh he, he would do extra stuff in those and sometimes I'd take care of the gym while he went and shot that in blood sport I think that was the one with Paulo in it, who was a guy that I kickboxed with. Really? Uh, you know, so yeah, I knew those guys, uh, some of the guys that were in that. It was a pretty small community of kickboxers. Yeah. Well, and those movies, man, th- those movies were big. Like uh, uh, Lionheart, I think, was another one. And then um, was Bloodsport the one with Dennis Alexio? Or with- Dennis Alexio was in one of them. And- no, I think the Bloodsport was John. Was Van Damme? Well, Van Damme, that, uh, that famous Asian guy with the big giant chest, yeah, yeah. Bruce Lee movies. Yeah, Chong Lee was his. Chong Lee, that's movie. right. Yeah, Chong Lee. Lee. Uh, yeah, and he was in uh, yeah some Bruce Lee movies. That guy was amazing. Maybe it was Kickboxer. Kickboxer, yeah, kickboxer was the one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, Desalexio. Yeah. He was a he was a professional kickboxer. Yeah, he and uh, the reason I mentioned that too is because he his family is from Vacaville here, and so we that was always the thing growing up. Like, oh yeah, Dennis Alexio. He was a badass back in the day. Oh yeah, um, I uh, there was another guy that was in there. Oh, oh you know, like uh, you ever heard of Benny the Jet Rokitas? Uh doesn't really like go. World. He's like probably the best kickboxer that ever lived. He had a gym down here. He's been a lot of movies and stuff and. Anyways, yeah, I was really into that stuff, and it was uh, it it just kind of taught me that uh, physical pain was much less painful than emotional pain. Like, I, like you know, just getting beat up was no big deal, and once you learn that, fighting is no big deal. Yeah. And you also kind of learn, you know, I think one I think it was Tad in your in one of your earlier podcasts said something that really struck me was like tattoos don't make you tough. <laughs> yeah. Like I kind of learned that in jail. Like I, you know, I spent seven years of my life pretty dedicated to learning how to fight. Yeah. And then I would get in these fights with these guys that, you know, in jail and stuff, I'd see these guys fight that were like supposedly tough guys and you'd see how bad they were at fighting. <laughs> and it didn't really matter how scowled they look or, you know, yeah. how tough they looked on their face. They had no skills. And so yeah. it's kind of like, you know, you could play tennis all your life. And if you're going to go against some guy who's a really good natural athlete, you're still going to beat him because you're a tennis player, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Might, if you both practice the same amount of time, he might beat you. But, you know, that's kind of well, – so, yeah, anyways, kickboxing was a big thing in my life. It really taught me a lot of lessons. It's crazy too. I mean, yeah, because when you put it in that perspective, um, you know, fighting really is an art uh, just like any of the um, – 
uh, you know, whether it's kickboxing or, or uh, Kempo or jiu-jitsu, I don't know a whole, a whole lot about them. I'd probably get my ass kicked, but it's, uh, it's something there. Um, I think like even for me, I, I would choose to look at it from the physical you know, aspect of it. But when you really break it down, the, the mental part of it and the emotional part of it is a lot, a lot stronger, I think, than people realize. And I think I remember you saying, and you, you know, you didn't understand if maybe it was just the, um, you know, the, uh, um, how the universe works, I guess, or I can't remember the exact terms you put it in, but once you started training and you became more confident, nobody really fucked with you after that. And not that a bunch of people fucked with you anyways, but you just kind of send that vibe off. Do you, you know what I'm saying? That is exactly, it's kind of interesting you bring that up because that's what I'm, that's kind of the concept that I'm wrestling with in my next book. And that's kind of like this concept, you know, you're in the Bible and in a lot of different spiritual principles. And that is, it is done to you as you believe it to be true. And that is exactly the, the natural law that was in effect at that time that I didn't have words for. I didn't know, but it wasn't exactly that happened. I mean, I, I literally went from, you know, I just never again had any incident. No one fucked with me because I didn't have that vibe. Yeah. You know, it was weird. It was, you know, I didn't know what it was. Now I know exactly what it is, but yeah. at the time I didn't know, you know, it's really, uh, yeah, exactly. It's so true. Well, so I want to give just a little, a little intro into some of the book and to some of the story later on. And I, I, I don't want to get into it just yet, but just so the listeners can kind of get an idea. Um, this, is, this is kind of just an intro of, of some of your story. On Tuesday, I was a respected civil trial lawyer making six figures. On Wednesday, I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed charged with attempted murder. And then it got worse. So we're going to get into that uh, in, in just a little bit. And that'll kind of take its course as, as we continue the conversation. But uh, one of the things that you and I have in common that I thought was so cool, too, was old punk rock. Uh, you were a straight edge kid growing up, man. Minor threat, bad religion. I mean, uh, that, whole, that whole movement. Um, tell us about that part of your life. And then how did, that, how did you go from that? Um, in, into starting to, to drink and use drugs, which ultimately, you know, led down the path of, uh, go ended up ending up in, in prison. Well, uh, I had, when I was in high school, my, my best friend was a musician. I hung around with a lot of musicians and, uh, I, I wasn't one, but, and they kind of like steered me towards music and they were really into heavy metal. So I was into heavy metal, like when I was in eighth grade and stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, they turn and then he turned me on to Minor Threat. That was the very first quote, you know, quote unquote straight edge band I'd ever heard. And it yeah. kind of it blew our mind. It was un, it was different than anything we'd ever heard. And then from there we just became fans and we went to all the other stuff that was nothing really got any better than Minor Threat. I don't know if you agree, yeah. but it was like, you know, then you had all these Revelation Records bands like Youth of Today with Ray yeah. Capone and and uh, Gorilla Biscuits from out here in California. Yeah, I remember. Like <laughs> I, I actually have a buddy Excel. They weren't straight edge, but Excel and uh, Suicidal Tendencies and yeah, uh, No Mercy. Suicidal. I got I got to grab my skateboard every time I hear some Suicidal Tendencies. Yeah, I break my neck now, but. <laughs> so uh, and they, you know, we just I just did what those guys did. They were straight edge, and I was just like looking for something to believe in, you know. And uh, so I was all about the. You know, you go to shows like I went to a few shows and you in in California, and they would come out here and, and Revelation Records, for instance, they were from New York and they would come out here and they would bring everybody. So you'd see six bands 
it would cost five bucks. You'd get a t-shirt for five bucks wow. and you'd be literally practically on stage. And it was such an eye awakening later on in my life when I went to some real, you know, concerts and saw some, you know, mainstream bands. And I'm like, what the hell is this? I'm like a hundred dollars and I'm a hundred yards from the stage. Like what, you know, and the t-shirts are $50. Did you feel like you could get out a lot, like a lot of aggression and shit back in those old shows? Like I know for me, man, that was like a, that was a time in my life when, I could go and I could just be me and just let go and, and just fucking hardcore dance and mosh and just have f like genuine fun. And I, at the same time, I felt like I could get aggression out and some of the feelings that were bottled up from, you know, whatever the hell was going on at the time, a number of different things. What about for you, man? Like, was that, did you have a connection there with that too? I did. I, I, you know, especially with the, the straight edge shows that were strictly straight edge, there was most, it was all about positive. There was a lot of positivity, even though it was kind of went, it went a little far after a while with the no drugs, no sex, vegan, everything. Yeah. You know, it was kind of, yeah. there, it was all about no, no, no. Yeah. But it was also this kind of positive thing about like kids that might normally get into drugs and stuff, which was punk rock before that was kind of like drop out and die kind of stuff. Yeah. And now you have the straight edge thing, which, so yeah, I totally had that, uh, you know, that you were just like, I don't know, it was a great atmosphere. Everyone was there for the same reason. When you would go in the mosh pits and stuff, people would pick each other up. That was like the yeah. protocol. Yeah. And so no matter how radical it got, the violence wasn't there. But then when you went to shows where there was mixed crowds, like I remember going to uh, Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach, which is now closed, uh -huh. and we saw, um, God, oh, we saw No Mercy, which is a very, very violent band. And uh, there was like skinheads outside and, and suicidals and stuff. And that had a different vibe to it. But uh, yeah. yeah, I think one of the first spiritual experiences I ever had was I saw Bad Brains and Seven Seconds together. Oh, man, that's rad. It was amazing. Like Bad Brains is still like one of my favorite bands. Yeah. Played Eye Against Eye. And they're just like, da -da -da, da -da, you know, they turn to Eye Against Eye. And I'm at the country club in Reseda, which is like this venue. I don't even know if it's there anymore. And, standing on this bar stool like eye to eye with hr the lead singer and just yeah. like just and then just losing it like it was the best ever it was one of the best shows i've ever been to yeah man all that just hearing you talk about it man it just it brings back so many memories man it's just a good a good time in my life and it, it is encouraging like i have two young kids man and i hope to um you know, I, I play guitar myself. I got my, my son playing drums now. He's two. He's already got some damn drums, man. He's banging. Oh, around nice. Around yeah, it's super huh? cool. And I, I just like, it's good to know, I guess, that there's still like a straight edge movement and that it's continuously growing. I know there's different sectors and there's kind of different. Some people believe different things. There's all different parts of it. But just the general mentality of, of no drugs and no alcohol um, and trying to live a healthy, positive lifestyle is really encouraging, you know, for me to see that, you know, hopefully my kids can kind of go down that same path uh, with all the bullshit that's going on in, in our society today. You know, it's just it's just thrown on on our youth. And it's really sad. Yeah. You know, I, I would, you know, like, it, like I said, it all started with minor threat. And it's kind of funny because if you followed Ian McKay. Yeah through his career and through his beliefs and everything and, and his musical journey, he's kind of still the guy, you know, he's, that guy's amazing. And he, yeah. he just like every, even the way he runs his record label and everything is pretty amazing. That guy from the Cro-Mags too is, is uh, kind of the same way. I forget that John Joseph, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Joseph, John Joseph, I think his name is same way. A lot of those guys have evolved into 
you know, um, you know, really spiritual beings and have done a lot of great things. Um, so yeah, it's great. I love music. I just, I don't play music. I just don't have it in me, but like my fiance is a musician and I, she plays guitar a lot and she used to play the drums and some, Uh uh, cool bands. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big part Cool stuff (laughs) for sure, man. I, uh, yeah, definitely a, a big part of a uh, big part of recovery too. I've had to kind of transition, you know, my my uh, uh, I guess how I how I approach it. You know how those songs like bring back the like songs will, or songs or smells. Those are two that really stand out to me. They'll bring me back to like a point in my life where I can almost remember the moment or whatever. And sometimes it's good and sometimes it's not so good. So I gotta always be careful about like what I'm putting into my brain. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I used to listen to Nine Inch Nails' Pretty Hate Machine when I was in law school and in like a dark, dark place. Damn. And even though I think that's a great album, I had to be pretty, I had to be real careful about yeah. when I listened to that. And yeah, uh, sure. yeah. So, <laughs> so, what, uh, so, so, go, so going from, you know, growing up, um, you know, straight edge, like take us to the point, you know, law school. Did you have your first drink in law school or was it, was it? After? No, no, I, I I went, I graduated from high school and then I went to uh, college and, you know, like a lot of the stuff is, is, um, is the underlying theme or the underlying mover of my life was fear. You know, like really when you grow up, like I did, what you're afraid of is poverty, you know? And then there was some point in college where I was really kicking ass and, you know, I was still kickboxing and I was straight edge and I, I think I was vegetarian at the time. I had, I had a 4.0 in my college. I, I was on the uh, Mali United Nations team and we'd won and I was elected to be the president of that. And I got an internship with one of the best lawyers in the country and, uh, and I got all these scholarships and, you know, I had a really great girlfriend and everything was just going well, you know. And so I kind of let my guard down a bit. And, uh, uh, like I said, um, you know, I, I was in New York for the first time with this, with the college team, the Mali United Nations. And for the first time in my life, uh, wasn't the first time I ever had a drink, but I, it was the first significant time I ever had a drink. But I say one night I went out partying in New York. First time I was in New York. It was the first time I cheated on my girlfriend. It was the first time I smoked a cigarette and it was the first time I drank to drunk, to drunk <laughs> all in one night. And it was the greatest night of my life, or at least I thought. Yeah. And, uh, I got, you know, that was the new, it, it didn't immediately change my life right then and there. It wasn't like I became an alcohol, a, a daily drinking alcoholic by any stretch, yeah. but it, it, it changed, it reset, it set the, it was a new default setting in my mind of what the best thing there was like the best thing there was now was getting drunk, smoking a cigarette. I, I just love that. Like it was like, wow, why hadn't I been doing this all along? And the, the idea of straight edge or why I'd been doing that or, or didn't drink all that time didn't even cross my mind. It was, it was, that was the new, yeah. that's the best thing there is. Wow. It's crazy, man. It's crazy how it's like a, it's almost like a switch, you know? I mean, you go yeah. from one one extreme to the other extreme in one night, and basically blow your load literally all all at once, right? I mean, you're just like, remember having that Jack and Coke? I remember I'm in this bar, everyone's smoking, but you still smoke. I'm in New York, 
they're playing like Billy Joel <laughs> and I've got a Jack and Coke. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck? Like, why did anybody tell me about this? Cause I drank, I drank beer before and I was like, beer didn't really do it for me. The Jack and Coke. I was like, Whoa, yeah. this is amazing. It tastes good. It's like, I'm feeling it was, I, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, um, are addicts and alcoholics and 12 steppers who can relate to that feeling of this like this is the best thing ever yeah oh yeah well and 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 so you know you had mentioned that you had cheated on your your fiance at the time and you know a a big part of your story is um is being addicted to sex and that's something that uh, at least on this show we we haven't really got into into uh much if if at all now that i really think back about it um you know i think with addicts there's all kinds of different addictions we can have right we can have you know booze, food, sex, uh, there's all different kinds of it. Um, in your case, you kind of hit like three at one time with alcohol, tobacco and, and sex. So take us from that night. Like where does the rest of the story go? Well, um, you know, it was a slow progression from that night. I mean, that night was, I was still an undergraduate and, um, you know, I, I kept it together. I graduated. I had, I got into a good law school and, uh, but I was slowly, you know, starting to have nights of drinking and I would sneak cigarettes and stuff. And I really got into porn. That was when you still had like VHS porn. And I also got into prostitution and, and massage parlors. And, um, that was just like really crazy, you know, just like, like I described in the book, there were just times I would just be like, you know, you know, I'd be driving down the street in the kind of near the neighborhood I, I grew up in and there was this university avenue and you'd see these prostitutes and they would just like bring this rush. It, it was very similar to how heroin addicts describe scoring dope and then using, you just, you know, you got this rush. So I got into that and I ended up, uh, as time progressed, I ended up mostly doing massage parlors because the prostitutes was just too risky, too risky of getting arrested, too risky of getting robbed, too risky of getting the disease. But massage parlors were kind of safe in, in some regard, although still. Uh, so, and, and I, 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 I'm sure that you're able, let me just ask you, I shouldn't assume. Are you able to find like, uh, sometimes with, with serious, you know, situations that are just, they're fucking crazy. Sometimes our lives, like things we go through, are you able now to find like the comedy in some of this shit? Like as you've grown and like gotten past it and stuff, or, um, or maybe, maybe comedy is the, the wrong word. Um, but I guess what I'm getting at is what does the negotiation of a prostitute like look like? I mean, that's something like, I, I mean, I've never experienced uh, that. Like what, what does that look like? Like, how does that, how does that play out? I don't, I, well, so the first time I, I can, well, when I was a little kid and I grew up in this Riverside, where there was Market Street uh-huh. and Market Street is where all these prostitutes would cruise around. And I remember when I was a kid seeing them and knowing something was up with them and getting a little tingle feeling, you know? (laughs) And then, and then I have this other memory of when my dad picked me up one summer, he had a fence company and we, and it was in Pomona and we drove through this unincorporated area to get to his fence company. And there was those massage parlors. And one time I saw this massage parlor, uh, prostitute walk out the back door and she had this little tiny skirt on and she was like waving goodbye to somebody or something. And like that stuck in my head. And right when I turned 18, 
I, right when I turned 18, like out of the blue, I drove down to that massage parlor from where I was living. It was 60 miles away and went there. They actually turned me away the first time. They didn't believe I was 18. I looked, kind of looked like a cop probably. And I still do kind of look like a cop, which yeah. is ironic. Uh, but, and, and it was just something. And then the, and then the pornography, I don't know. It was just like, but the, but yeah, well, the negotiation is a trip. I mean, you pull up, you know, they kind of sense you. It's like drug addicts always talk about, they can tell who's selling the drugs and who's the addict. It's like the, it's like the predator can tell yeah. who the prey is, you know, yeah, that sixth and sense. <laughs> they knew like you, I drove up and I remember the first time I drove up and like the girl walked towards my car and like indicated for me to pull around the corner and she's walking up and I'm just, you know, my heart's beating a thousand beats a minute and I just drive off real quick and just like, <laughs> It was like a free rush, you know, yeah. and then eventually yeah. I did it and it was, it was crazy. You're just like, wow. why am I doing this? This is insane. And yet the high was unbelievable, uh, you know, and then, yeah, it's, it's, well, I think it's, it's crazy to me that you had that thought as a kid, um, and how those, how those acts or thoughts or, you know, maybe we see something can play into our adult lives. Um, you know, I can remember, um, you know, sneaking magazines and, you know, and as a kid, you know, like, I don't know, playboys or hustlers or whatever. And, and not really, you know, not really knowing exactly what it was, but it was naked chicks. You know what I mean? And it was right. like, fucking, this is cool. Like, I don't know. I, I was a little, little dude, man. And, um, you know, I think as, as men, or I'll, I'll speak for myself, like, you know, sex can be an issue with, with many, many men out there. Um, you know, and a lot of us, at least for me, like I'll write it off as like, Oh, I'm just a dude. That's just how, that's just how dudes are. We're fucking horny and we like, we like to fuck. And that's just the way it is, you know, but at a certain point, you know, with the pornography involved, um, when you start getting into those things and then in your case, it, it actually leads to, you know, prostitution and massage parlors and stuff. It can really fuck us up bad. How do you, how do you think the porn industry has really hurt our society too? Um, I mean, I think that's had a huge effect on, yeah. on our society, on our youth, you know, growing up now, it's just so easily accessible. You can just jump online and, and get free porn on there. Um, like you said, back in the day, you had to go, you know, you had to find the VHS from your uncle's closet or something, you know, yeah. And, yeah. or you had to go, you had to go show face in the, in the, in the sex shop and shit. That was like the novelty oh, you know, deal to go in <laughs> and fucking have a hood on and shit. You know? yeah. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, man? Well, I know, oh, I know, I know I threw no, like 10 different things at you. No, no, <laughs> I could talk about this for hours, but, um, so I'm trying to sum it up, but you know, I, I've been cognizant of this long before, for a long time. When I wrote an article when I was in law school for an essay contest called, um, uh, Miller versus the United States. And it was about, uh, pornography and, uh, and it's basically a Supreme court case that defined obscenity. And what happened was, is that, uh, you know, obscenity, uh, there was pornographers that were always on the line of like, you know, <laughs> if I make something that's too hardcore, I could go to prison if I, you know what I'm saying? So it was like this thing. And so they defined pornography and it had to do with prurient interest and all this stuff. And it was so vague that it really didn't mean much. Yeah. But, um, and so what happened was, uh, when Bush was in office, 
um, they were very hardcore on the on obscenity, and they prosecuted a lot. But then when Clinton came into office, he pretty much dis, just completely got rid of that part of the attorney general's office. It basically gutted it. And so what happened was that happened almost at the exact same time that video cameras came around. So when video cam home home video cameras. Yeah. So when home video cameras came around and VHS tapes and that uh, the federal um, prosecution stopped, it exploded, right? And so like any other drug, uh, tolerance happens. So the pornographers would react to the tolerance of people and they would get it would get more and more and more hardcore like if you look at 60s pornography uh it it's probably no more hardcore than stuff you can see on mainstream tv yeah there was like i mean it was like somewhat passionate back in the day right. you know it was right. like it, there was some i don't know it wasn't it wasn't fucking nearly even close to as graphic as shit that is out now right and now it's and now it has a tonal quality to it that is, it's not just what you're seeing on the screen. It's the tone of it. And, you know, I, I don't think it's good to, uh, I, I don't think it's good to just like say that's bad and this is good. That's not going to help anybody. But, yeah, yeah. but there's, there's no question that it's going to affect people. I mean, the fact that most kids, teenagers and stuff, are seeing acts of hardcore sex many, many times on their computers long before they have, where they have sex themselves, of course it affects them. It's their example of how sex happens. Yeah. Uh, I remember being in rehab and some guy in there had uh, a daughter and he was telling me this story of like how the school had made some statement or something telling the parents to be careful because there was a new trend in, in the schools that because the girls didn't want to get pregnant that they were having anal sex. You're just like, I mean, I was just like, oh my God, you imagine that you have a teenage daughter and that you hear that come across, you're like, lose your mind, you know? So it's definitely an addiction. I mean, there's definitely addiction quality, addictive qualities. Well, like where, where do you, but where do you draw the line between like, I'm a dude that likes to have sex all the time and and my wife will fucking vouch for that (laughs) and a a sex addict. Like how do you, you know, and that's kind of what I was getting at earlier. And and maybe this is for my own personal selfish reasons. I asked you this, but I'm sure there's some other folks out there who can relate to it. Um, Like where's the line in between that? And then our, you know, our society, we've been so molded into like, I'm just a dude, you know, I, I like to have sex. I like to look at chicks. I jerk off sometimes. Like, I mean, it's just fucking normal. So like, you know, what is the line between like, where it's too much and then, you, you know, it's, it's normal, I guess, in a sense. Well, I imagine it's different for different people, but for someone who has, who has an addiction, addictive character, um, you know, I think it has to do with the same thing that would be with drugs and alcohol. I mean, a normal person, when they drink, has a couple drinks and everything's cool. They're not thinking about it all the time. They certainly don't have shame. Yeah. And I think any sex addict would tell you that when they have acts of sex that are sex addiction, that there's shame almost immediately after. And, you know, there's a different quality to it. I, I think that, uh, you, that sex with somebody you love or, you know, somebody you're in a relationship with, or even masturbation or something that, that is just part of, of human sexuality yeah. has such a different quality. I mean, that's why I can talk about it so freely and people kind of trip out a little bit on that because I just, it's so clinical to me. The sex addiction act is like shooting dope. 
or taking a pill. It's, it's no different. It's just a different uh, delivery system. And it's, it has really no connection whatsoever to sex in a loving relationship. Yeah, man, it is. It's, and it, it is kind of trippy to talk about and to think about. And man, I really appreciate you being so open about it and, um, and, and talking about it. Cause it's something that's not talked about. I mean, I've been looking forward to talking with you for, we've had, you know, we've had the scheduled now for a while and, um, it's such an important issue. And I think there's a lot of guys out there like myself who just don't really understand like where that, that line is, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that doesn't, you know, obviously it's not a bunch of, it's not cases that are, you know, as extreme as the lengths that you went through with being a full blown sex addict. But I think that there's always those, um, there could always be those certain issues there in, in not really knowing like what is okay and what's not so, what is not okay. Um, what a, so, well, let's kind of, let's kind of jump back. Sorry, man. I kind of got us off track there a little bit, but good, good conversation. And I appreciate you, you kind of elaborating on that a bit. I want to get back into your story and take us through that progression of how, um, the prostitution, the massage parlors, the alcohol, um, it, it continues to get worse. And then, um, take us to the night that ultimately really changes everything for you. Okay. Well, let's, uh, flash forward. I went to Pepperdine law. I graduated and passed the bar. I had a lot of depression. I drank some, I, I acted out some while I was there, but I kind of kept it together and kind of, I was a half-assed student, but I was good enough to, to graduate and, and pass the bar. And, um, I moved out to near where my family was at, at the time, which is North County, San Diego. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I, as addicts tend to do, we, we just go gung ho or whatever we're into. So I did that with law and I, I had some success, you know, and, um, got a good job and had this place by the beach. And, uh, I just had a lot of access, you know, and a lot of, and so I was just, I just started, I started representing bars. Like I did a lot of, uh, I find a, found it pretty, uh, you could get, if you got bars as clients, it was really good <laughs> because they had all kinds of legal issues. They were always in trouble. They had slip and falls, they had ABC issues and they had all kinds of issues. And so I would go in there and I'd play the big shot and I'd drink at bars. And so I could, you know, I'd hang with the bar owners and a lot of the bartenders, would, you know, the owners slash bartenders would be doing coke and, yeah. and just hanging out. And, uh, and it just, I just started, it, it, it just became, you know, what it, what it was, it like got to the point where, where if I was honest with myself, my life was about chasing my addiction. Like there was nothing I would rather be doing than sitting in a bar stool and drinking and smoking and then hopefully, you know, meeting a woman and having sex. Yeah. And that was the, that was it. So all my work and stuff was really just towards that, like make money. So I get to do that a lot, you know, yeah. it's a really sad way to live. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I, I fell, I kind of blew up in Oceanside and kind of didn't get along there. And so I, did a geographic and I moved to Riverside and joined this really good law firm out there back right there where I grew up and uh, really good law firm, prestigious uh, law firm had been there for I know, almost a hundred years. Great lawyers were there and I was going to start over, you know, and when I first started, I did really well and, and built a lot of hours and everybody liked me and, you know, the usual, but then it started going downhill 
And then in Riverside, unlike Oceanside, there was a lot of uh, prostitution and massage parlors around that were uh, ones you could have sex with, sex at. The ones in Oceanside didn't for some reason because I think it had something to do with the Marines. Uh, they had some thing where they wouldn't go past a certain point. Anyway, so I was in I was in Riverside, and that's when I got my first DUI. <laughs> I thought it's cool, man. I'm just getting a hand job, no big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hand job. That's that's sweet sauce. <laughs> Sorry, uh, man. <laughs> and uh, so I go, I got this DUI, and it was a really bad DUI. I rolled my car over at 85 miles per hour. It was a passenger that got injured, and um, I got beat up a little bit, and and you know, uh, I got a felony. DUI was I was being prosecuted for a felony DUI and I was just I was just humiliated and uh, and I just you know decided that I needed to take care of this drinking problem. So what I did was I decided I needed to move somewhere where I didn't have to uh, drive in order to, to go to a bar. So I moved to uh, I got an even better job and I moved to Santa Monica and I lived in Santa Monica and. and I got a, you know, it was like, I always say I failed up, you know, I, yeah. I got, a, I made more money. It was a nicer place to live. It was, you know, everything was great. And I did really well and I kept it together for a few months, just like before when I was there. And then I was smoking, fucking drinking so hard because every night I would come home and I could just walk. There was a, there was a massage parlors Damn. within walking distance. There was, two, I mean, there was probably six or seven bars within a half a mile of my house. But ironically, at the time, I would kind of, I kind of chilled out on the sex stuff because uh, it was, it was um, too risky, and you know, so I just drank and smoked a lot. But what happened one night? I went out, and I'm still, you know, I just settled the DUI, and I got away with only having a misdemeanor DUI. And I was supposed to start AA meetings and drunk driving school like a couple days later, and, I, and that was a two-year process of fighting that case and everything. And the last thing the lawyer said to me. And it was Nooch Trutanich, who was the guy who ran for city uh, for a DA here in LA recently. And he says, uh, Joseph, I don't don't ever don't ever do anything like this again. And I was like, Nooch, you gotta be kidding me. You'll never see me again. Oh, <laughs> you know? oh, wow. And uh, so one night I, I I failed out of that law firm too, the one in Santa Monica. I was I just drinking and partying too much. I wasn't getting my bill of hours in, so I started um a law firm with my friend from law school. And again, I failed up. Everything was friggin' awesome. We made, we were making even more money. I had all kinds of time on my hand. At first I was scared that we weren't going to clients, but we got even more and more clients and you know, things were just good. And then, uh, I, one night I came home and I was negotiating with myself. I was like, you need to go to bed. You need to go to bed because you got to get up early and go to this client meeting at a, at a golf course. It's like really early in the morning, don't go out. And I'm standing out there smoking cigarette after cigarette. And I know how we do. We talk ourselves into this stuff, right? Yeah. And uh, so I talk myself in. I'm like, okay, we'll just go out for one drink. So I go out for quote unquote one drink and I, I black out. I drink, I don't know, six or seven Jack and Cokes and a bunch of beers or whatever. I black out. I walk back down the street. I go to an ATM machine. Unbeknownst to me, all this is in a blackout. I figure yeah. all this out from the police report afterwards. But I pull a hundred bucks out of the uh, ATM machine, which is exactly how much you need for the, to have sex in the massage parlor. I go to this massage parlor that's literally like a block and a half from my house and I 
knock on the front door and nobody answers, of course, because it's two, three in the morning and there's no one there. And but I'm in some weird blackout yeah. thing and I'm pounding and it's like this kind of weird C-shaped motel thing where one corner of the motel is a massage parlor uh-huh. and the rest of it is like old motel rooms that have been converted to single residence occupancy type thing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a weird Santa Monica area where it's like a lot of stuff is grandfathered in. So you'll have a million dollar house, uh, one, two doors down from a, a massage parlor. It's <laughs> That's crazy. Over there. And so I, um, I went around back and I climbed into the massage parlor window. It was, and I took off all my clothes and I went to walk in the massage parlor with just my like wallet, I think in my hand. And I, uh, it turned out I went into the window that was right next to the massage parlor window, but it was adjoining, you know, like flat surface. So all the windows are the same. And I went in there and it was some guy's apartment. So this guy has, uh, this guy wakes up to the smell of alcohol and cigarettes and, uh, me some, you know, at the time I was like, 220 pounds, six foot four white guy with a heart on with wallet. And of course he loses his mind and freaks out. And, um, and we get into a fight and, you know, I try to subdue him and, you know, I don't really remember any of this other than just kind of like, I do have a little bit of memory of being in like a room where there's like lights that are spinning, kind of like a dream when you get those peripheral kind of red and blue flashes outside your head. And I guess I, I put him in a chokehold, which was something I learned from my martial arts times, which was a um, corroded artery hold, which would, you know could kill somebody. So, um, but I let him go, and then he chased me. I went out the window. I came in, and he went out the other side and got a friend of his, and they went and chased me and beat the shit out of me in front of a in a lawn uh, across the street, right next to a Wiener Schnitzel. And uh, so I'm sitting there getting my head beat in. Uh, by these guys, this guys hit me with a skateboard. So this guy's hit you with a skateboard, boom, boom, like over and over and over. And uh, at one point, I think like, oh, he's going to kill me. Like I can't feel it because I'm so anesthetized from the alcohol that I can't feel it. But at some point, I'm like, oh, he's going to kill me because he hit me like six or seven times over the head as hard as he could. Yeah. And uh, so I I get away and I run. I'm pulling up my pants and I'm running down the street and I hide in some bushes and the cops come and get me and arrest me. Damn. And then I wake up and I you know I black out. You know I'm st- I was in a blackout the whole time and I and I wake up like you said in the, in the intro you gave. I lock. I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed, not knowing what the hell was going on. You know I didn't know what was there and then the doctor came in and stapled my head shut because the skateboard had cracked open my slid open my um, scalp and put a bunch of staples in my scalp and then and then that's where it started um do you want me to continue yeah or? yeah i mean so so yeah guys just fucking insane man insane um so i mean you you nearly you nearly kill someone you nearly get killed um and you don't recall most of it as you're yeah and as you're describing that like the spinning you know, the lights and stuff. Yeah. I just, I just picture like a, you know, you see in those movies when people are just fucked up out of their minds, they don't really know what is going on. It's almost like a nightmare. Um, you, you wake up in the bed and what are you thinking? Like you're there for what, I mean, did, well, fuck, I probably got another DUI or did I crash or you, obviously you don't really have any idea of, of the full severity of the, you know, of what just happened the night before. Um, what happens from there? Um, I knew that I had, 
I, somehow I knew that I had been in a massage parlor. I think it was because maybe when the cops told me or something, or, or I had some memory of that. Uh -huh. And so I thought I was, I thought I called up my lawyer after they put me in, uh, you know, they put me in, gave me my one phone call. And, um, she asked me what it was. And I, I thought it was probably solicitation of prostitution was what I was being charged with. Um, I figured what happened was I went to the massage parlor and, and got in trouble there. Yeah. And you would, you would kind of had that fear before too, right? That's, that's what you were saying earlier is that that's kind of a reason that you stopped is because you didn't want to get picked up and get caught for being out there, you know, solicitating. So I guess that would make sense in, in, in that thought once you, yeah. Yeah. So I thought I was being charged with solicitation of uh, prostitution and my attorney finally shows up after a long time. And at that point I kind of had, um, I was having really like I had really drank, I pr probably came pretty close to dying and drank so much and, uh, from alcohol poisoning. And I was having like, just like almost hallucinations and shit. And, um, she comes and I'm like, what, you know, come on, what's up? Bail me out. I got to go like, I got to go deal with the aftermath of not showing up to that meeting for work, you know, like having no idea, thinking that was my problem. Yeah. Having no idea how severe this was. And she says, uh, I'm like, what are you, what am I being charged with? And she says, attempted murder, you know, Dang. attempted murder. I'm like, whoa, attempted murder. <laughs> and it turns out what happened was the cop, the guy that I, the, the sad victim, you know, the unfortunate victim of my um, chaos and my, my insanity was described with the hold that I had put him in. And that is a hold that cops use uh, or used to use before they killed a few people in county jail. But used to use. And so they were very familiar with that hold. And so that's why they charged me with attempted murder. Um, cause it was a deadly hold. Yeah. But then as you might, as your listeners might recall from the intro, that things got worse and you might ask, how could things get worse from being charged with attempted murder? <laughs> well, <laughs> I ended up being charged with a whole bunch of sex crimes because the theory of the DA was that I went into the room, uh, with the intent to commit rape. Um, and, uh, you know, which is horrifying, yeah. embarrassing, horrifying. And, uh, you know, that was just an absolute nightmare. And so for the next two years, I fought the case and, and, uh, I've never, uh, not given up the whole story when I do a podcast or anything. So I'll, I'll go ahead and do it here. But, you know, I, I ultimately, uh, pled guilty to, um, a sex charge. I was looking at, you know, if I would have been convicted on all the charges, I would have done 20 years. And uh, I just wasn't willing to put my, even though I thought I had a real good chance of winning a trial, uh, even, the, even the judge said, you know, that he didn't think there was evidence to support the idea that I was there to commit rape. You know, the judge doesn't get to say that to a jury. So yeah. they're looking at me, some privileged white boy, you know, breaking into someone's house in the middle of the night with a heart on. You know, that's not, a, that's not something I want to go in front of a jury with. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so ultimately I pled guilty to that. So, I'm a, you know, right now I'm a registered sex offender and uh, hopefully unless there's, I mean, if there's a law change, I might change one day, but now that's where I am. And uh, had to do some time, but very little time in uh, Chino prison. Um, went to Twin Towers and, and uh, Chino prison for a little bit, but not 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, I did, I did uh, find some of that interesting in the book about, um, you know, being in prison 
and um, I think you're in protective custody, right? Yeah. When you went in. So how there was a guy, Roman, I read and Leonard, <laughs> yeah. interesting part of the book. Um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what is that like going into prison? You never obviously been into prison. You've been on the other side of the law and then now you have to go in there and you also have to go in with this title that the, um, you know, the story behind the title doesn't quite add up, you know, or, or, you know, make sense to the actual title that you have to go in with these charges that are against you. How do you kind of deal and work through that, man? Well, I took a two tiered approach. One was I got as big and buff as I possibly could get before I went in. So I went in 220 pounds ripped and, and big as I, as I'd ever been in my life. And then the other tactic was to go in wearing glasses and to be an AA, a big book thumping geek yeah. and lawyer. And my my um, my cover was that I was in protective custody for because I had been a lawyer and I had done some criminal defense work. And so that was my you know take it to the grave uh, you know uh, line. But my my theory was you know. Hopefully they won't mess with me because they'd rather pick on somebody that's smaller. Yeah. Uh, and then my other thing was like I didn't fuck around. Like when I went in there, I didn't, I didn't do commissary. I didn't talk to people. I was friendly but curt and short, and I stuck to myself. And I, I was just smart and safe when I was in there. And, I, and uh, you know, and my and the twelve steps were really what saved my ass when I was in there. You know, I I. I mean, I prayed, I meditated, I read, I read the, the big book probably 30 times cover to cover while I was in there. And, uh, you know, it, you know, it's weird in there that people would come up, people even would say to me, like, you don't belong here, you know? So they kind of know if you're in there and you're playing the games that a lot of people are playing, that's when people get in danger. I'm not saying people aren't in danger when they're not, yeah. but that's when they are. And as far as the protective custody thing, which is sex offense, you know, that's a real dangerous place to be because there's two people in protective custody generally. There's sex offenders and, well, there's three people. Sex offenders, snitches, and gang dropouts. Yeah. Now, gang dropouts, like, like your, um, um, like Tad, right? Yeah. If, he went, if he, God forbid, went back in, he would be in protective custody forever because he was a gang dropout. Yeah. Now, that's dangerous because you got guys who are like hardcore and who aren't down with, you know, sex offenders in there with them. And so that could be really dangerous and scary as I describe in the book, you know, because yeah. yeah. they want the, the, the thing is in there, they don't care if you're in there for, uh, you know, masturbating in public, you're a, you're a child molester. If you're in there for any sex offense, they presume you're a child molester and you're, you're there, you know, you're going to be killed. Well, and man, that, that's, that's gotta be a hard thing. I mean, just the word sex offender, um, you know, obviously there's, there's not, there's not a very, um, not a very positive review behind that word. Um, how, how do you, I mean, you, obviously you're very open about it. You're very accepting of your, you know, your path that you've been down and the things you've been through. How do you kind of deal with that, man? Um, and how has that, how has that been, um, you know, dealing with and moving forward in your life and trying to get back on the right track and trying to, um, you know, give back and, and share your story in the hopes that help, you know, hopefully it helps somebody else out there and they don't go down that, that way. Um, well, you know, straight pepper diet was the story of how I survived, how I went to get in this position and, and how I survived after I got arrested, right? 
And this next book that I'm writing, which doesn't have a title yet, is really about the question you just asked. And, you know, I really had to, I really had to have like a second spiritual awakening around this about, like I said before, it is done unto you as you believe it to be true. You know, I had to take responsibility for this. When I first got out of jail and I took a deep breath and looked around, I went, oh my God, I am a registered sex offender, two strike felon, I'm broke and I can't practice law anymore. What the fuck? But I had to go from saying that as a victim to saying that as someone who says, I am responsible for that. I am responsible for everything that happens in my life. The way that happened that night was not foreseeable. But that it would happen, that a shameful sex addiction coupled with blackout drinking, that something horrible would happen, is very predictable. So I am 100% responsible for what happened. And the fact that I'm a registered sex offender uh, is my... I'm responsible for that. I caused it. I did it. It's 100% me. Now, I wrote this book, Straight Pepper Diet, and that's kind of my answer to like what happened. You know, it's funny because like when I go to parties and stuff and meet new people, it's like all roads lead to hell. <laughs> all roads lead to hell when you talk to me. It's like, what do you do for a living? Where, where'd you go to school? Pepperdine. Bam, bam, bam. Disbarred. Why disbarred? Boom. <laughs> You know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a writer. Oh, what's your book about? Straight over diet. Boom, boom, boom. Sex offender. It's like all roads lead to hell. What, what, is, what is the initial, when you, when you say that, I'm curious, man, what's the initial reaction or the face? Like what's the most often, like what, what does that look like? Well, I don't come out and say, oh, I'm a sex, well, yeah, yeah, sex but, offender. But a lot of people are just like, oh, because you might say you wrote a memoir. You're like, well, yeah. you're 45 years old. I don't know you. Why would you write a memoir? You're not a star. I'm like, oh, yeah. well. Read it. You'll find out. Um, so people, you know, people are taken aback. But the, the thing about people is like, I've been a sex offender. I've been a registered sex offender now for 13 years. I have never, ever had a neighbor come up to me. I've never had anybody email me, say anything nasty or any horrible things. Yeah. I think of the 133 Amazon reviews that I have on, on, on um, Amazon, which is a, for those who don't do Amazon, that's a lot of reviews for yeah, a book. It is. Um, I think I have one review on there that says something like somebody said, like, I don't trust Joseph. He probably did it. You know, <laughs> like, that's not bad for 133. Yeah. My point is, is that the truth of who you are is you can't hide that. People will see that. And my truth is in that book. I'm not a rapist. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. Um, I was in a blackout that night. Nobody knows. Nobody that knows me or has been around me would ever think that I was a rapist or that I did this. Um, but, it, but it doesn't really matter because it was a horrible, horrible thing I did. Whether I'm a rapist or not, I still broke into someone's fucking house in the middle yeah. of the fucking night yeah. and could have killed them. I, I mean, when I had my DUI, I could have killed the passenger, myself, and 10 other people in a car. Uh, I am responsible for these things. So, you know. I, I, uh, man, I, I really admire your, your self-responsibility and your willingness to step up and um, not only talk about your story, um, you know, but, but also, you know, set an example for, for, I mean, for those listening right now, I mean, shit, if, if Joseph can, can get his life back on track after going through what he has been through, um, you know, pretty damn sure almost anybody can can do it and and can go through life facing these adversities and in these you know some really tough tough things in life 
Um, you know, but when we stand up and actually, I, I love what you just said, like I'm responsible for me, you know, and, and that's it. Like there's nothing more to it than that. And until we stop blaming, you know, circumstances or other people or places or things, um, you know, it really doesn't allow us to be the, the, the people that God really intended us to, to be in our lives, man. And I, I really admire you for that, man. And thank you for, for coming on today and uh, sharing and being so open and honest about it. Ah, no worries. Hey, I, I, uh, I appreciate it. I'm, I'm honored to be on the show. And, uh, hey, I had a thought. I hope this is uh, yeah. appropriate. But you were, you know, I, you were asking about how to give away the books. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking maybe uh, have the first people to email you that know what the reference straight pepper diet is from. <laughs> All right. And if you want, I'll, I'll be happy to send you some more books. We got tons of them. And uh, if there's more than that, people. Yeah, I have. Uh, I, so you you guys sent sent us four copies. So we have four copies right now, and um, we will. That, that's a so so. Let let me get this straight. So whoever emails me, the first four people that email me with the reference to the straight pepper diet, what it means, then we'll we'll send you out the book. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. That you like perfect. that? I love it, man. That sounds right. perfect. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, well, let me, let me ask you one more question. And then I, I think, um, I think we'll, we'll wrap this up, man. It's been great talking to you today. One thing that I thought was interesting about this, like alcohol, like drugs, um, you know, once we get clean, once we get sober, we can't go back to that because it all, all roads lead back to the same thing. And in a lot of cases, sometimes worse with sex. I feel like that's a bit different. And if this is a little bit too personal for you, man, I totally understand. And, and, you know, we don't have to go there, but you're in a relationship today. Um, you know, you, you've built a new life for yourself. How, how do you deal with sex in, in a, in a, in a healthy relationship in, um, you know, in, in being recovery from being addicted to sex? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I guess really it just, like I said, it doesn't really have the same tone to it. Like I just yeah. don't have any connection to that. Um, I guess it, I guess if I had to draw an analogy other than what I said earlier, would be like to food, you know, like there's addictive eating and then there's eating for nutrition and health. And while you do have to be cognizant of what you eat, like having sex with a loved one in a committed relationship, at least that's what I do is has just doesn't have, um, uh, the tonal qualities or the addictive qualities that having sex outside of that. And, uh, you know, in a for prostitution or pornography or anything like that, like it doesn't have, it's just, it's completely dissimilar to me. It, it, it's not like it's, I guess food would be the best way. Maybe like if you're a food addict, I've never been in that program, but you know, eating, um, eating something that you like, that's, you know, maybe eating fruit, you, you love fruit and everything, but it's uh, different than eating, uh, you know, grubbing out on an entire chocolate cake and feeling horrible. Yeah. It's like, Something like that. I don't know. It's hard to describe. Yeah. But, um, no. Yeah. No. I, I appreciate you. Um, you know, throwing it out there, and and um, it it is. It's it's. I think it's not. It's probably not hard to, or not only hard to describe, but hard to to understand. I think too. And uh, I think it's a it's a good it's a good topic though. In, well, in any case. And I would add to those like say okay so maybe you have some listeners out there who, who uh, do pornography like not a doubt it right very yeah. unlikely but let's just say. <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, but like, just say, like, try maybe for them, try going, um, try going a, a couple of weeks without it, you know, yeah, and and see 
if it affects you. It's kind of like what they say in, in, a, in the book says in Alcoholics Anonymous. If you're not sure you're a real alcoholic, uh, try going a, a while without drinking and see how it affects you. Yeah. Because you got to know, right? You got to figure it out, or you can't have a good step one. Yeah. Well, yeah, man. I, and I'm I'm gonna step out on, out of the box right now, and uh, and and be honest with uh, with you and everyone listening to myself. Um, you know, I've had issues with pornography myself, and and I think that's where, um, you know, that whole thing comes in that I was kind of asking you earlier about like, well, how do I know if it's a problem? How do I, is it just something, you know, it's so normalized now. Um, and I will say that it's, it's been over a month since I've looked at any pornography and it really has had a positive effect on me. And I've been able to see it and, and actually, um, I kind of feel like, kind of feel like a weight a little bit lifted off of there, you know? And I know dudes look at porn. I'm not saying that, you know, that if you look at porn, you look at porn. I guess it's everyone's, you know, own individual choice and whatever. But um, I, I'm i encouraged by by your, you know, your, your kind of challenge there um, in my own right. And then I, I would, I would second that to anyone out there listening. If you, if you uh, think it's an issue, you feel like it's an issue, maybe it's affecting your marriage or a, a relationship or whatever, uh, try it out, you know, give it, give it a few days without tugging the old snake on there and see, see how that works out for you. I mean, you never know. Yeah. So the, the book is uh, the book is a straight pepper diet. Uh, we'll put a link inside of, um, of the show notes here. And Joseph, for anyone out there who wants to reach out to you, wants to get more information, uh, where could they do that? Um, you can email me at uh, killer, uh, no, uh, straightpepperdietmemoir.com has my uh, contact on there. You can email me there or uh, I'm on Twitter and, and, um, and Instagram at uh, Joseph W. Naus. Um, and yeah, that's it. Cool, man. I just realized Please I, reach out. Please reach out. I just realized I slaughtered your name, huh? I said Nas, Joseph Nas. It's well, it's funny because my family always pronounced it Nas, but then when I took German in college, I, I was rebellious and started pronouncing it right, which is Nas. <laughs> so all my, if my family listened to this, they would be pissed off. But that's all right. But you got it right. I'm just the only one. Okay, cool. I don't feel so <laughs> Well, hey, man, thanks so much for coming on today, man, being so open, sharing your story. It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing, and uh, I really appreciate it, man. All right, peace and blessings to you and all your friends.